0: The biggest bad guy in all of this is, I hate to say it, my own country, the United States. We provoked this war. We wanted this war. We provoked it. And the real victims in this war are the Ukrainian people. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debate. some of them behind the scenes, and I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer, to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, There are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said, he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read as I have, The writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman; I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture this is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Today we're discussing Russia and Ukraine, but I want to tell you what has motivated this particular podcast. And it has to do with one that we released, you know, just a little more than a week ago, a couple of weeks ago. And that is an interview that I did with my daughter, Sasha. Now, Sasha... Those of you who listen to that, the comments are overwhelmingly positive, but there are a few people who drop into those comments to say something very negative, um, and that is because... Either A, they don't really understand Sasha's story, or they don't understand um, or don't want to understand what she has to say about Ukraine. Sasha, Sasha um, was adopted from Ukraine um, just a little more than a decade ago. So let me give some context to what we're talking about here. In that particular interview, Sasha... Um Sasha has an extremely powerful story. It is both a heartbreaking story of suffering of extraordinary suffering, but it is also a powerful story of God's grace, of God's redemption of God's work in her life. And uh, she can't tell that story without saying negative things about Ukraine. It's just a, it's just a fact. And if you read the book which I wrote, on this subject, it's a book called *The Grace Effect*. It was published in 2011, so long before there were people who are putting, you know, Ukraine emojis on anything, or uh, most people could even find Ukraine on a map. People just really didn't care about Ukraine at that particular time. It's a, it's, it's both her story, it's a glimpse at socialism, and it's a brief history of Ukraine itself. Now, Sasha. Sasha is okay with sharing her story because she knows it's very important for other people to hear. She knows that it encourages some people who are suffering, maybe who have had a similar uh, you know, background um, to her own. They don't have to have come from Ukraine, but maybe people who have suffered uh, a, a extreme abuse, sexual, physical abuse, neglect, all of these kinds of things. Uh, and Sasha's not a person who looks back. She doesn't think of herself as a victim. as By the way, as most victims genuinely don't. Most real victims don't want to talk about their victimhood. They just want to move on. And that's Sasha. Sasha's generally a very upbeat, even an exuberant person. Her brother sitting here in the room and will confirm that that is the case. But in that interview, you don't see that. And it is because there's a very, very heavy topic for her. It's a difficult for one for her to um, to discuss for reasons that are obvious as you begin to watch that. And again, people have responded very positively to that. I think it now has something like 170,000 views on YouTube and it just keeps going. It just keeps going. And um, so on behalf of my daughter, thank you so much for the kind things that you have said. But as I've indicated, there are some negative negative comments. Some of those are directed at me because somebody maybe doesn't like my politics or maybe they look and they say, well, he does most of the talking. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, Sasha, you know, I really wanted wanted Sasha to do a YouTube live event. She was like, no, 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 (laughs) I don't want to do that. (laughs) I am not interested in doing that. But I'm happy to do the podcast if you mostly tell my story. I want you to be the one who really tells my story and then just ask me a few questions. And, uh, and of course, I did um, do precisely that. But then there are those people who drop into the comments and their entire focus is Ukraine. It's all about Ukraine. They didn't like what Sasha had to say about Ukraine. They didn't like what I had to say about Ukraine. They didn't like the negativity about Ukraine. So you had, you know, this woman um, named Tanya or something who dropped into the comments and talked about how awesome Ukraine is. It isn't an awesome country. It is a horrible country. I know this. I've been there many times. But it is human nature to assume that in any struggle between parties that If you don't like one, you must like the other. So the assumption is that if I say something negative about Ukraine, it must mean that I'm pro-Russia. Well, I'm not. Um, I have said repeatedly, both in my writing and probably on this podcast, we haven't talked about Ukraine very much on this podcast, but I've said repeatedly on this podcast that there are no good guys in this war. Not Russia, not Ukraine, and definitely not The United States. Now, some of you will take exception to that. My guess is that probably before last year, you couldn't find Ukraine on a map. You didn't know anything about Ukraine. You never been to Ukraine. You still don't know anything about Ukraine. Or you're one of these people or a bot who falls into the comments whose job it is to push pro Russian or pro Ukrainian propaganda. Get off my YouTube page. (laughs) You don't, you don't have any, any, any business being on it because you're liars. You're all liars. And that is because what we have in this war are victims. We have bad guys and victims. And I would suggest to you, the biggest bad guy in all of this is, I hate to say it, my own country, the United States. We provoked this war. We wanted this war. We provoked it. And the real victims in this war are the Ukrainian people. They have been victimized by their own corrupt government, and it is a deeply deeply corrupt government, just like Russia, which has been master and uh, tutor to Ukraine for centuries. Ukraine learned very well from their master. They're both deeply corrupt countries. But the United States under Democrats has become, are we equally as corrupt? We're not there yet because it hasn't gone through the entire, but at the federal government level, I would say we are. I mean, the Biden administration is incredibly corrupt. Everyone is going to encounter pain in their life. The questions deal with the degree of one's pain and the source of one's pain and how we deal with our pain. In this course, I'm speaking very personally about my own pain and some of the lessons that I've learned in coping with pain, how we minister to people with pain and what kind of perspective are we to have on the big questions that surround pain and human suffering. Why would you take a course like this? Well, presumably, if you haven't suffered in your own life, you will encounter people who do, and undoubtedly, some of them are people who are very near and dear to you. I think it'd be very helpful for you to take a course like this in order to understand what they're experiencing and the way that you minister to people in those kinds of circumstances. So I'd love for you to take this course of mine. And I wanna tell you this, that when you subscribe to Tome, you get access not just to my course, but to more than a hundred other courses that are dealing with very practical issues and assisting you in living and in flourishing. So where can you get this course? Well, you can't get it at Amazon. You can't get it at Apple can't get it at Netflix. You can only get it at Tome. So I want you to go to tomeapp.com slash pain to learn more about my course. Let's get back to the podcast. Last night, I wanted to refresh myself on Sasha's story. Um, And that is because, you know, Sasha, the, you know, we adopted her at at close to 11. She was three weeks from her 11th birthday. She had been abandoned at birth, raised in three different Ukrainian orphanages. And she is a delightful human being. She is our, our, our daughter. Um, we love her very much. Um, she is, uh, She's a remarkable human being. And But we try not to have those conversations with Sasha for a reason. They're very upsetting for Sasha. And so the kind of the, the unspoken rule in our household has been, you just don't go there with Sasha. You let her bring it up when she wants to. She, she gets to bring it up when she wants to. So last night, I decided to go back and look at um, the book that tells Sasha's story. And this is it right here, The Grace Effect. It is my first book. Now, again, this book was published in 2011. So this was long before Ukraine was a... A hot topic of um, political division in U.S. politics. If I brought up Ukraine, both Democrats and Republicans, you know, in any lecture that I might give, and I've given many on this book, any presentation, would respond kind of with equal horror. None of them were pro Ukrainian or anti Ukrainian. They were just kind of a blank slate on Ukraine. They just didn't really know anything. About Ukraine. So I, I didn't write this with any kind of pro Biden, pro Trump agenda, nothing like that. I was just telling the story of my daughter and telling the history of Ukraine and socialism and the disastrous effects of that ideology. And usually, by the way, I say the word, I want to say this, I usually say ideology. And I've noticed that some of you have picked up on that. Like, hey, you're not pronouncing it correctly. Well, there's a reason. There's a reason for that. When I was a kid, we're learning these kind of vocabulary words, and I don't know, something like history or social studies, um, I, I developed a little mnemonic device. And the mnemonic device was to, to, to think of the word idiots um, when I thought of the word ideology. To think of idiots, to think of Marxists, communists, socialists, fascists. These people are all ideologues. They're all ideologues. But the mnemonic device for remembering, and as a kid in probably middle school, I think, was ideologues, they're idiots. And this is what I'm talking about in this book. They're idiots, the ideologues um, who are who were driving Russian and Ukrainian history, an uh, absolutely godless history. So here I am rereading the book um, last night. I don't know what other authors do when it comes to their books, if they go back and you know reference them a lot. I generally don't like to watch my own videos or, you know, listen to my own lectures. And I often don't want to go back and reread my own books because I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And if I find an error, it drives me nuts. And no matter how hard you try, there's going to be typos in there, you know, or something like that where you go, ah, I wish I'd have said this. I could have said this better, you know, this kind of thing. So I haven't looked at this book since I wrote it in 2011. So last night, I'm sitting there, you know, while Lori is sleeping, I'm sitting there and I have on, um, you know, a, a spy thriller in the background while I'm rereading this. And first of all, I was thinking, whoever wrote this book, he's very funny. This guy is very, very funny. <laughs> he has a sense of humor that's exactly like mine. <laughs> you know, so He just, wow, that was just... <laughs> but seriously, I, uh, I found myself deeply moved because I was reminded, all the memories started flooding back of the things that Sasha suffered, of all the things that Sasha went through, the things that were going on in the orphanages that were going on in Ukraine at that time. And again, there are those who have dropped into the comments to criticize, to say, ah, you know, Ukraine isn't that bad. Ukraine is wonderful. You people suck who say stuff like that. You do. And it's because what you're doing is you're dismissing Sasha's suffering, you're dismissing it and you're minimizing it by saying stupid things like this. Well, things like that go on in the United States? Nowhere near on a scale like we're talking about here. Nowhere near on a scale. And just to illustrate what I'm talking about, Transparency International every year puts out what they call the Corruption Index. The Corruption Index. And it's a report... They're a nonprofit that seeks to expose global corruption. And each year, Transparency International ranks countries from least to most corrupt on their corruption index. So, United States, Japan ranked number one in this particular edition. Ranked number one, meaning least corrupt. So, they're ranking from one to 180. They don't do every country in the world, there are roughly 200. That number changes. Um, um, more or less, they just they just do 180 of those countries. So Japan was deemed least corrupt. The United States ranked number 16 on this list. Guess where Ukraine ranks? You for those of you idiots who say that well, it's just a, it's no no more corrupt than it is in the United States. Ukraine ranked 134th on this list out of 180 countries, meaning that. There are 133 countries that were deemed less corrupt than Ukraine. 133 of them. Ukraine ranks well behind such models of integrity as uh, Vietnam and Nicaragua and Rwanda. Mexico, corrupt Mexico ranks a full 33 spots ahead of Ukraine. <laughs> it's Mexico is deemed to be Less corrupt than Ukraine. But they're not fully to blame for this. And that is because Russia, again, as I say, master and tutor to Ukraine for a millennia, ranks 154th. Even worse than Ukraine. And my guess is that the Ukrainians and the Russians had to bribe people just to get those spots. They had to cheat just to get that because in Ukraine and Russia you can't get anything done you can't get your water turned on your electricity turned on you definitely can't adopt a child without bribing everybody and so i keep hearing people say well that was in the uh, that was in the orphanages one one woman commented i she's a ukrainian and she said i went into the uh, the orphanages and the people on my team were nice to the kids in the orphanages what what does that even mean who cares So you went into a place where children are literally rented out for sexual molestation. That's what goes in there. But because somebody on your team patted the kids on the the head, maybe gave them a candy bar, maybe painted a, you know, a, uh, a, a bedroom for them or something like that. Barracks is really what they are. They don't have their own bedrooms. And then you left, you felt like the orphanages were a good place. I appreciate those Ukrainians who seek to bring, seek to mitigate the suffering of these children, and not just the children, other people in Ukraine, but they are few and far between. For the most part, we encountered indifference in that country. And if you think that it was just the orphanages, first of all, it wasn't Russians abusing those kids in those orphanages, it was Ukrainians, it wasn't Eskimos, it was Ukrainians. Now, is it better in Russian orphanages? Definitely not. The data says that it is every bit as bad. Again, I don't see any good guys here. There are no good guys here. And if you think that that level of corruption is, is systemic in the United States, it isn't. It just simply isn't. You're just simply, you're just simply voicing your ignorance when you say things like that. Do I believe things like that happen in the United States? They do. Do I think it happens from top to bottom? They don't. Not yet. They might under people like Biden, under the Obamas, under Democrats, under leftists. These are hateful individuals who hate humanity. So don't try to drag out to me America's past sins. America is a hundred times better than Ukraine or Russia or just about anywhere Eastern Europe or Third World for that matter. But we are rapidly descending into that hell. We are rapidly descending into that hell. So I'm not here to defend the United States on this point. Simply pointing out to you that trying to tell me that Ukraine is somehow somehow is, 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 uh, the, um, just as good as the United States in this regard, it isn't. It is a deeply corrupt country. And guess what? Just as recently as 2019, the New York Times called Ukraine and Zelensky a cesspool of corruption. Then someone sent them the memo after Biden's non-election that you got to be on Team Zelensky in Ukraine. So suddenly they did an about face and started saying that Ukraine was wonderful. But prior to that, our media was on to Ukraine. They understood that Ukraine is deeply corrupt, just as Transparency International has pointed out. And again, I want to point out to you that the corruption that we encountered in Ukraine was systemic. It ran from the orphanages themselves straight up to the federal government. It wasn't isolated. You see, this is what I believed early on when I was fairly naive with this. And and, and I want to be clear, I am not a naive traveler. I'm just about to head to Africa and uh, and to Europe. Uh, Nigeria is regarded, where I'm headed, is regarded as even more corrupt than Ukraine. (laughs) I always, I was telling my wife the other day, there should actually be not first, second, and third world. There should be first, second, third, and fourth world. Ukrainian poverty is extraordinary poverty. Nigerian poverty, Colombian poverty is at another level beyond even that. The kind of the the kind of corruption that I'll run into, Ukraine is, excuse me, in um, Nigeria is even worse than Ukraine. So there are worse places, but not many. And according to Transparency International, there are only forty seven worst places <laughs> in in the world. So it it ranks as one of the absolute worst. But being somewhat naive about this level of corruption. When we were um, adopting Sasha, when I ran into individuals who wanted bribes to just do something that any decent human being would do to help us adopt this child, I thought, well, it's just this guy, it's just this adoption facilitator, it's just this translator, it's just the um, the head of the orphanage. Then you realize, nope, goes all the way straight to the top. I had to bribe every single individual to make this adoption happen, except for one, one woman, one government official. And God bless her. God bless her that she's storing treasures in heaven. I do believe God will reward that woman because she did not want to bribe. Everybody else did. And that goes to show you how much they care about these children. Not at all. They don't care. So save your pro-Ukraine bullshit for somebody else because I don't want to hear it. Save it when it comes to Russia. Don't want to hear it. I've been in both of these countries. I've spent a ton of time in these countries, and the corruption is systemic. It runs straight from the orphanage workers straight up to Zelensky. It's all right there. What? Um, two, one, make sure you say, It's a great comment. No, they, 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 they. they, It wasn't just as you pointed out. It isn't just that they wanted the bribes. They weren't going to do it unless you gave them the bribe. They just, they, they, they would would pat her on the head, give her a piece of candy. Sasha, our adopted daughter, they would do things like this in our presence. But when we're not there, they're willing to rent her out. If I had come into the orphanage and said, "Eh, "I want a little boy, you know, about eight years old." Want to have sex with him? How much? They would have rented him out. There's no question because that's what they do. Now, do I think every single individual involved in the in the orphanage system does this? No, they don't. But it's not an anomaly that this happens. And at the end of the day, those people who are coming into the comments who are criticizing what has been said in that particular podcast, that interview with Sasha about Ukraine. They don't want to say, they don't really want to directly take on Sasha's story. They know they can't win on that because it is her firsthand account. It's a powerful firsthand account. So what they do is they try to dump it on me. But they're directly contradicting what she herself had to say. At one point, she stops me during that interview and says, I want to be clear that this was happening in the orphanage. It was the worker's. This was happening across the board. So, so, those of you who say, "Ah, it wasn't that bad," what you're doing is you are minimizing her suffering for the sake of your own politics. And what this does is it exposes it exposes the left for who they are. Because some a way to identify leftists, a way to identify leftists, um, it, ideology, idiots. The way to identify leftist ideology. First of all, notice that they, in tweets and this kind of thing, have you noticed how they resurrect words that are, are kind of in disuse, that almost nobody's using the word grifter? A decade ago, I, that word just almost nobody used. Now it seems like grift and grifter are all over the place, and they're being used by the left. Somebody will fall into the comments and say, oh, you're just a grifter. That, that's a leftist. That's a bot, or it is an operative." who is sent out to say, these people have no creativity. They have low intelligence, so they have to be issued a vocabulary. These are the words that you use. These are the things that you say. You see it over and over again. And another way to spot a leftist is this. They don't really care about the individual. They love humanity in general, the millions, but never the one not their actual neighbor. They only care about man in the abstract, not in reality. It's for them, it's all or nothing. They they speak every, every (laughs) genocidal ideology, fascism, socialism, which have a body count of roughly 150 million in the previous century alone. They had noble slogans all over their banners. They spoke of their love of humanity. But they don't love humanity. They don't care for the individual. And that is exposed in the comments that after listening, and to how much they actually listened to what Sasha said, I don't know. But it's incredible to me that anyone could hear what she had to say of her own suffering. And You could tell it's costing her to tell that story, and it does caused her to tell that story. We as a family seek to protect her when she's telling that story. That's why I do most of the talking in that video. She doesn't want to, but when she does speak, she's dropping gems. I believe in God because of my suffering. Whoa! Just an incredible line, just incredible wisdom in that, how she shows such grace and mercy. She's not seeking revenge. She says she trusts in a God who will see to that on her behalf, and God will. I mean, scripture itself says if you abuse the orphan, if you abuse the widow, I will kill you. These are the words of the Lord. I happen to believe them. If you don't, it's at your own risk. But those of you who are who are abusing my daughter in the comments by disputing her story about Ukraine, I know you don't, you don't, you don't dispute her directly. You're smarter than that. You just make it about Ukraine and your own politics and how Ukraine really can't be all that bad of a place. It exposes you for the evil people that you really are because when confronted with the suffering of a real human being, not abstract, but a real one, guess what you do? You blind yourself to it. You pretend it's not happening. You don't want to see it. You don't want to know. I had one guy this past week said, I'm going to unfollow you because you described what happened when the atomic bombs were dropped. You described the horror in that. You said it was pornographic. Pornographic? Do you not want to know the reality, the truth of what actually happens? Listen, I don't want to live watching Schindler's List every day, but if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Or one like it. My mom said to me, and I love my mom, but she said, I don't want to see Sound of Freedom. It's too depressing. And I said, you need to see Sound of Freedom. You need to see that film. You need to know what's going on. And to her credit, she said, okay. <laughs> but she didn't want to see it because it's depressing. Too bad, so sad. You need to see it. You don't, don't be a Pollyanna. Don't put your head in the ground and pretend it's not happening. But leftists love to act like they care about people. And then when you put one in front of them in the person of Sasha, they don't care. And by the way, Sasha didn't even scratch the surface of her actual suffering. Well, she didn't tell you, she's, she's born HIV positive. But through no fault of her own, she inherited that disease. When she came to the U.S., you know, because her front teeth looked okay, we assumed her back teeth were okay. But we knew that she, we could see by the way she was eating that she was, she was struggling. So we took her to a dentist. Dennis takes me out of the room and he says, and I quote, her teeth are bombed out. And I said, really? He said, she has exposed nerves, seven teeth with exposed nerves. Fortunately, they were all baby teeth in the back. She'd been given no anesthetic for that. Her teeth were drilled with no anesthetic. When I told her I was taking her to a dentist, she started to weep. And she started going like this, making the, uh, the motion of a drill. They were going to drill her. She would had her teeth drilled without anesthetic. That's a shitty country. Say what you will. It's not a country I want to live in. It's not a country I want to raise my children in. Again, are all Ukrainians evil? No. Again, I've been in that country at least seven times. Russia, about the same. I have a master's in Russian history. Marxism, socialism, literature. I've taught them all. I've traveled all over Eastern Europe. I was there earlier just this year. I was in Romania at an old communist prison. will probably discuss that on the podcast at uh, at some point. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about something I don't know anything about. I'm talking about my daughter. So this is a wicked, wicked system, and it is a wicked country. And for that, you need to understand this. So what I want to do... Now, as I want to give you just some basic principles in which to try to understand, to try to navigate these countries, this war, what is happening in this war. It's very, very difficult for Americans to understand this. And again, I want to be clear that I don't think the U.S. has any business being involved there at all. I've said to you that we provoked this war. We have. And it's not just been Democrats. It's been it's been Republicans as well. Beginning with the Clinton administration that convinced the Ukrainians to give up their nuclear deterrent. We said, give up your nuclear weapons and we'll protect you, even though we're on the other side of the world. We'll protect you. See how that's worked out for Ukraine. And... The Bush administration lent support to what was called the, um, the Orange Revolution in, I think it was 2005. Um, the Obama administration helped to destabilize, a, um, overthrow a democratically elected government. But why did we do that? Because it was a pro-Russian government. We didn't want that. So we, uh, we helped overthrow that. But guess what? Shortly thereafter, Putin invaded. That's in 2014, invaded into, um, into Eastern Russia and then into the Crimea. So this war has been going on actually for quite some time. One of the things that has really amazed me in this whole Ukraine-Russia war has been the attitude of the United States, State Department, the Biden administration to act completely shocked that Putin invaded Putin invaded. He's just a maniac. He's crazy. This was the kind of stuff that they were saying at the time of the invasion. Made no sense from their point of view. One of the things that you learn in Russian history 101, I mean, I didn't have to go to graduate school to learn this. I was taught this when I was taking Russian history as an undergrad, that Russia has always regarded Ukraine as absolutely vital to their survival. Not Estonia, not Latvia, not Lithuania, Ukraine. And that is because it is their access to a warm water port, hence the reason Putin went after Ukraine. He didn't go to, to to take over the whole of Ukraine. He went after, in 2014, he went after the Crimea. And that is because historically, Russia has seen Ukraine as vital because it's their outlet to from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean, Mediterranean, into the Atlantic. They have no other warm water port. You say, well, uh, up in the north, not warm water. Freezes over half the year. To access through the Baltic Sea. What? Way out um, and to the east? Nine time zones away? No, I don't think so. So that's one thing. Second thing is they've always regarded it as a borderland. That's what the word Ukraine actually means, borderland borderland. They have regarded it as vital to their own security. It is a buffer state for them. So it seems the Russians were reasonably contented to let Ukraine be semi-independent, leave them alone, so long as we didn't meddle in their politics. And we did. And that is because the Biden administration's approach has been, and prior to Biden, Obama, and prior to Obama, George W. Bush, and before George W. Bush, Bill Clinton. So both Democrats and Republicans said, you know what, it makes perfect sense to use Ukraine to poke the Russian bear. Let's just piss them off. Let's just do that. Putin had been very clear in his messaging, do not put NATO on our border. But we did. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And then we kept telling, Biden kept telling um, Ukraine, hey, we'd love for you to join NATO. And that was the thing that Putin kept saying. We will not permit Ukraine to join NATO. We will not. And if you keep doing this, we will invade. Guess what he invaded? (laughs) I'm not saying that what he did was moral. What I'm saying is from a Russian point of view, it was perfectly rational. And that is because think about what the United States did with the Cuban missile crisis. Let's just reverse it. Russia was aiding a communist country 90 miles off our border, 90 miles off the coast of the United States. And then they said, we're going to put nuclear weapons there. And John F. Kennedy, different kind of Democrat in those days, said, no, no, you're not. If you, if you try to do that, we will blockade it. And so we did. And we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. We said, we will not have this right off our border. Now, a half century later, we said we're going to do it to Russia. We're going to we're going to we're going to make we're going to destabilize the Ukrainian government. We're going to use them to fight a war against Russia. We we don't want to send our boys over there to die. We'll just let the Ukrainians die. We'll let them fight Russia. Hey, we'll send you some cluster bombs. We'll send you some stuff to fight a war, a war of attrition to bleed Russia and bleed Ukraine. That's what's happening. But again, back to my point about, uh, about Cuba, we are now doing the same thing to them. And, and Ukraine isn't 90 miles off Russia's border the way Cuba is 90 miles off our border. They're butted up right next to each other. And we're saying we're going to destabilize that government. We're going to use them to fight a war with you, a proxy war. And by the way, we're going to make them a member of NATO, a permanent threat to you. And this is the way Putin, you know, has seen it. Ukraine has become a permanent threat to Russia's survival. It is our breadbasket. We need it to feed ourselves. And it is our access to a warm water port. This is the way, this is what blows me away, that we spend billions in all these pretentious think tanks and absolutely no one saw this coming. Are you kidding me? You learn this in Russia 101. You learn this right off of the bat. So I'm a little blown away that all the people at the Cato Institute and Brookings Institute and the buildings full of policy analysts at the State Department, no one said, you know, we're about to provoke a war here. Probably would be wise to say out of this. And please don't give me all your pro-democracy speeches. You know a place that I love, a place you went with me. If we were going to fight a war for freedom that I think would be worth fighting, it was for Hong Kong. Hong Kong, genuinely pro-democracy, not, not, not Ukraine, not Zelensky. He suppressed dissent in that country. He has suppressed other parties. They are obviously corrupt. Hong Kong has a thriving Christian population, loves the United States, is pro-democratic, and we did nothing as they were crushed by the Chinese And the Chinese pose a much greater threat to us than Russia. Far greater threat to us than Russia. Who knows how long it is before they move on Taiwan. And I think they will move on Taiwan. And I think we will do nothing. The Chinese know we'll do nothing. So I'm trying to give you a 35,000 foot view here, not getting into the weeds of all the specifics of this conflict and of this war, but to try to help you understand a little bit of what is taking place here. And again, when I say that I don't think we should be involved here, and I say that I think the United States, least of all, is a good guy in this. We are not, we are not. And that is because we are using Ukraine for our own sordid political agenda. We want to destabilize Putin. We want to destabilize Russia. But we figured we'd let the Ukrainians do it for us. You go fight our war for it. We'll send you some money. We'll send you some weapons. You go fight and die in that war. It isn't just that we've done that, but there are also credible rumors of the U.S. using Ukraine for a massive money laundering scheme, child sex trafficking. And by the way, Ukraine has a lot of that. I can verify that firsthand, just as I said at the beginning of this podcast. And it is also a place to hide chemical weapons laboratories. It seems we were up to some very nefarious stuff in Ukraine, developing chemical weapons, biological warfare, and the Russians knew it. And the Russians knew it, and they sought to expose it. So... Again, let me state that I have been in Ukraine and Russia many times, so I know a little bit of what I'm, what I'm talking about here, and I just really want to give you a lens through which to try to understand some of this stuff. Let me back up about 30 years in this story. In a way, and I'll tell even some of it from a personal point of view to try to give you a glimpse of what I'm talking about here. In the late 1980s, as I'm, you know, I'm, paying close attention. At that time, I was a bit of a news junkie. I'm in my teens, in my early 20s, and I was subscribing to U.S. News and World Report, um, Newsweek. Um, I am reading just a a, a national review. I'm reading just about everything. I was a news junkie at that point. Not anymore. I try not to do that these days because it, uh, it influences what I do on this podcast in a way that I don't think is always helpful you 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 get stuck in the weeds and you don't see the larger you know picture which i think is important but something very exciting was happening and i was fascinated even then with russian history i'm a product of the cold war you know so i grew up you know seeing on tv some of you will remember this even wondering if I was ever going to make it to adulthood because you would see on the nightly news, the United States has this many, you know, bar charts. The United States has this many nuclear submarines. The Russians have this many. We have this many ICBMs. They have this many. Our um, armed forces are this many. theirs are that many. And then you, of course, you've had all these movies um, about world war three, these kind of apocalyptic movies. I remember one that I thought was pretty good. Probably watch it now and think it was terrible, but it had rock Hudson in it, he was playing president of the United States and David soul, um, plays, um, an, an American military commander in of all places, Alaska, when the Russians invade Alaska crossing the Bering Strait. And it's this very tense standoff and the movie, as I recall, it was a made for TV movie, but it ends as I, I recall with the Russians launching their ICBMs and us launching our ICBMs and that's the way it you know it ends you know that both countries are about to obliterate each other you know as a kid you're watching all that stuff all the time on the news i can remember actually praying lord i'd love to make it to adulthood <laughs> i'd actually like to make it to adulthood some of you will remember this so something very exciting started happening in the geopolitical spectrum and that was that Gorbachev came along. And before I even get to this, I should I should probably say this. Let, let me back up just a wee bit and, and make this point. Russia's history, like Ukraine's, because the they're Siamese twins. They're inextricably linked. Are there cultural differences? Of course there are. But there are massive cultural similarities. And there are many Ukrainians who are pro-Russian. You know, uh, I recall a poll before, Putin's invasion that 16% of Ukrainians wanted to be, wanted to see the resurrection of the old Soviet Union. 16%, a lot of people who were feeling nostalgic for the old iron-fisted days of Stalin. They wanted to go back to that. That's what they wanted. There are others who feel the same way in other parts of the former Soviet Union, former satellite countries, and in Russia itself. But I I should give you this this little picture of Russia that might be very helpful to to you, to understand that that Russia's history, like that of Ukraine, has always been kind of schizophrenic. It always is struggling, it's oscillating between being being very modern, being very pro-Western, being Westernizing, and being what are called um, Slavophiles. Slavophiles meaning the idea of a love for the old Slavic traditions. Um, becoming very hardline and cracking down anti-Western. And probably the first true Westernizer in Russia's history was Peter the Great. Uh, Robert Massey, by the way, um, Rhodes Scholar, wrote a great book about in uh, the early 80s, I think it was, called Peter the Great. It is a terrific book. I would highly recommend that book. Peter the Great is fantastic. It gives you a glimpse into the Russian soul. Peter the Great, who was a big-time westernizer who was determined to drag Russia into the modern world, kicking and screaming if he had to. And he was, um, he was czar of Russia between 1682 and 1725. Following him were a series of mediocrities, empresses and emperors who are almost irrelevant until we get to Catherine the Great in 1762. Catherine the Great, she was a German princess. She was already Western, but she became Tsar of Russia, excuse me, she became Tsarina, Empress of Russia. And she was a Westernizer. She wanted to, to bring Russia into the modern world. She reigned from 1762 until 1796. She was followed by her son, Tsar Paul, who hated her, and he was a Slavophile, so he took it back in the other direction. He was Tsar between uh, eight, excuse me, 1796 and 1801 when he was, he was murdered. Guess who he was followed by? He was followed by his son, Alexander I, who was educated by his grandmother, Catherine. He was a great Westernizer. He, by the way, is of um, war and peace fame, Tolstoy you know, immortalized him in, uh, in War and Peace. He was Tsar of Russia between 1801 and 1825, so he took it back in the Westernizer tradition. He goes back in that direction, back that way. He dies in 1825. There are some conspiracy theories that say he really didn't die, but he faked his death like Elvis in, uh, in 1825. He's followed by his half-brother, Nicholas I, who took it back in this direction because he was a Slavophile. Didn't want anything Western. We're not modernizing. We're not doing that. He was Tsar of Russia between 1825 and 1855. He was followed by Alexander II, who was, can you guess, a Westernizer. So he took it back, and you're starting to see the schizophrenic nature of Russia's history. And Russia governed Ukraine throughout this time. He took it back in a, um, the other direction. He was called the liberator Tsar. He was a very liberalizing czar. He created a, you know, a parliament. He freed the serfs. Russians love to point out, we freed our slaves before you did. He did that in 1861. Ours came after a civil war in 1865. He was blown to bits by socialist revolutionaries who didn't want a westernizer. They didn't want a guy who made a concessions. They wanted power. They wanted to control. Somebody stepped out of a crowd and threw a bomb underneath his carriage, blew it to pieces, blew his legs off, and uh, he died. He was followed. Alexander II was followed by his son Alexander III, and Alexander III was Slavophile. Harsh. He was called the the Alexander III was called the Russian Bear, big man going to crack down, ultra-conservative, all things Russian, want nothing westernizing. So he goes back in this direction. He dies in 1894, and then he is followed by the ill-fated and weak Nicholas II, the last Tsar of Russia, who ruled from 1894 until 1917 and then was murdered on my wife's birthday, actually, July 16 of 1918, I think. Um, Andy along with his whole family, his, uh, his wife, Alexandra and his children, Olga, Maria, Tatiana, Anastasia, and Alexei killed them all. No, Anastasia did not survive. It makes for a great movie, a great story, a great Disney film, but not true. Didn't happen. The picture I'm trying to give you here is that Russia, it's very difficult for us to penetrate and understand Russian politics using a conventional Western lens for doing it. It's constantly going back and forth between one or the other. And this continued straight on down to our own time until we get to Gorbachev. And this brings me back to what I was saying earlier. In the 1980s, something pretty exciting was happening. If you're an American, not so much if you're a Russian, if you're part of the Part of the uh, Russian satellite states, it was pretty exciting. And that is Mikhail Gorbachev came along, and Mikhail Gorbachev was a westernizer. Nothing like his predecessors, uh, Yuri Andropov, former head of the KGB, or Leonid Brezhnev, or Khrushchev, or any of those figures. Stalin, certainly not. Lenin, there was a long period of what we'll call Slavophiles. But then we come to Gorbachev, who was a westernizer. And what starts happening is you see the satellite states, the Russian satellite states, beginning to break up. You see them uh, beginning to um, declare their own independence. And that began in 1988. The first of the republics begins to declare um, independence. And then it was a domino effect. You began seeing it from others. By the time I was boarding up, and so I'm studying... Russian history at this time. And as I'm boarding a plane to go to London um, to be further educated on European history, Russian history, socialism, Marxism, um, just as I'm boarding a plane, there was a coup attempt in Russia called the August coup of 1991. And the most enduring, the most famous image of that period was that of this man, Boris Yeltsin standing astride a Russian tank, you know, and declaring, you know, that they're going to continue the reforms in Russia. And shortly thereafter, in December of 1991, the Soviet Union collapses, and the world rejoiced. And this, by the way, was a time of, this was a time of really, really heady, a wave of euphoria was sweeping the Western world. It was an incredible period of time. And I have to say I was swept up in it too because in 89, November of 89, you had the collapse of the Berlin Wall. I remember watching that event. And again, I'm, I'm a student of history. I'm a, I have ambitions of becoming a writer. And I was thinking, if only I weren't so young and still an undergraduate, I could be astride that wall, chipping away at it like everybody else. I wanted to be. I had, I had those kinds of aspirations. It was, it was an exciting time. Again, euphoria was, was sweeping the Western world. It was captured by the popular culture, the scorpions, the headbanger, big hair, West German rock band of rock you like a hurricane fame. They, they produced a beautiful song called Wind of Change. That again, spoke, really tried to capture this euphoric moment. And it was because people really thought that that a kind of utopia was being ushered in. And that song, it says, the wind of change blows straight into the face of time. Like a storm wind that will ring the freedom bell for peace of mind. Let your balalaika sing what my guitar wants to sing. Talks about walking along the Moskva down to Gorky Park, I've been to Gorky Park, hung out there with some mafiosos, but that's a different conversation for another day. Gorky Park's a very famous park in Moscow. I'll never forget being there in, uh, you know, it has like a little fair in there. And a friend of mine was um, was doing one of these, you know, little gun things, uh, you know, knocking down bottles. And um, this this Russian guy wanted to challenge him in this. <laughs> and I said, you better let that guy win because I promise you he's mafia. <laughs> I promise you he is. And then after that, he wanted to race us in go-karts, which was kind of funny. But anyway, you had the scorpions you know, singing a song like this. This was a great time. Everything's wonderful. Great things are going to come from all of this. How could anybody feel negative about any of it? Then Eddie Money, Eddie Money of Two Tickets to Paradise fame. He produced the song, Peace in Our Time, which is about the wall. Again, it's like utopia. He says, never going to break down the walls and build a prison with the stone. For you and I know what love is worth, going to build a heaven on earth. This was the thinking at this time. Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd, after the wall came down, they performed at the Brandenburg Gate. You know, the... The wall ran right through the Brandenburg Gate. And so they performed right there, their album, The Wall. People have their lighters all up in the, in the air. You know, this is, a, this is a euphoric moment. The world has changed for, for good forever. Francis Fukuyama, scholar, he published The End of History and the Last Man. You know what the thesis of that book is? The thesis of that book is that Western liberalism has won out. It's over. The, the fight against Marxism is dead. It is over. It is, uh, Marxism is now on the ash heap of history, as people were saying at that particular time. And now it's just simple mopping up uh, operations. Democracy has won out, is the thesis of that book. Hedrick Smith, who was formerly um, the... Uh, Moscow bureau chief for I think the New York Times it may have been the Washington Post he he produced a book called The New Russians this book right here which is a very interesting book by the way but again he was saying that again democracy has won out this was a snapshot of an era we have seen the end of the cold war and then something started to happen and what is it that started to happen Well, I was in Russia at that particular time, and freedom, the Russians decided, really wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Many Russians decided that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be, and that is because freedom requires responsibility, self-reliance, and Russians weren't used to this. It also means a certain measure of chaos kind of enters into the culture, and they didn't like it. Suddenly uh, you had not just Christian missionaries that were going into Russia, but you also had Scientologists pouring into Russia and Mormons and all kinds of things that they deemed to be cults that they did not like. And they started saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't necessarily, we don't want all this. Pornography began flooding into, um, into Eastern Europe. American movies, American music, many of which they deemed to be spiritually void and corrupt. They were saying, we don't want all this stuff. And suddenly, there became a desire for the Hebrews to return to Egypt. The Russians began longing for, feeling a nostalgia for, the old iron-fisted days of Stalin. Not all of them, to be sure, but many. And this was also true of Ukraine at the same time. So guys like Vladimir Putin just bided their time. They just kind of went underground there for a while and bided their times, and guess what? As public sentiment began changing over these things, you began encountering Russians. I'll never forget a conversation with both a Ukrainian and a Russian that went very similar. When I was in Ukraine, and I think in 01, I remember a Ukrainian, who I liked very much. He was a nice guy that began talking to me about how Americans really didn't understand the history of the Soviet union and Stalin really wasn't all that bad. <laughs> and we were, we were crossing a river at that. I remember exactly where we were going across this bridge. Um, the Dnieper river, I believe it was. And, um, I, I started at that because this was a guy who just you know, struck me as just a regular guy. And now he reveals himself to be pro Stalin. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa say that again? And he said, yeah. He said, I mean, you know, I mean, America has its own propaganda and your propaganda doesn't portray Stalin accurately. Stalin was a good leader. I mean, I hope Ukraine will reunite with Russia. Wow. Then in 2017, and you were with me, I don't know if you were with me for this conversation, But um, you were with me in Russia at the time. I was having dinner just off of Red Square. And I'm having um, a conversation with this young man who's maybe 25. And he's starting to tell me how wonderful the Stalinist period was. And he said, you know, back in that time, we didn't have the chaos that we have now. And I said, yes, and you had eh, maybe about 60 million people less too because Stalin killed about that many. But to him, it was immaterial. It didn't matter. That argument did not make a dent with him. It's like some of the people who fall into the comments on um, our YouTube page. And by the way, I do want to say this. Those of you who have joined the posse, that's what we call those of you who are regular listeners, viewers to this podcast, the posse, you guys are awesome. We're just going to keep building this. I apologize that we have run into a little bit of trouble on YouTube. Uh, they haven't booted us off, it's nothing like that as yet, but amazingly, you. whenever we premiere a podcast, YouTube, which is to say Google, their servers have not had the bandwidth to take all of you people. The traffic has been too much and the result is that some of you are experiencing you know, disruptions in the feed because there's so many people who are going on there at the same time uh, trying to, um, trying to watch this podcast. And so we're hoping we can, we can get that changed. Some of that has to also do with the fact that we film this in 4k and YouTube doesn't seem to be fully geared up for 4k, at least for not as many viewers as we've had on this podcast. I think in the last, I don't know, since we've started this, I think we've had roughly 3 million downloads of this podcast in, I don't know, roughly six weeks. So it's incredible. So we want to keep building, want to keep building the posse. So thank you guys for watching. Thank you for paying attention. But you see the problem that we have here. We're talking about trying to understand a Russian Ukraine that does not think like the United States. Here's just a simple example of that. The most fateful date in Russian history is 988. Why is that? The first Russian state wasn't founded in what we call modern-day Russia. It was founded in Ukraine at Kiev. It was called Kievan Rus. So you right away begin to see some of the complexity, some of the difficulty untangling the history and thus the ongoing conflict that is taking place there. This war is not new. This conflict is not new. Russia seeing Ukraine as their own possession is not new. Just about every Russian ruler since, you know, the beginning of time viewed Ukraine in much this way. And it's partially due to the fact that the first Russian state was founded at Kiev in the ninth century. It'd be like saying that the United States, you know, its founding didn't take place in what we call the United States today. didn't take place in Boston or Philadelphia or modern day DC or, but in Ottawa, it'd be like saying that. And so that's that's part of the problem that we're dealing with here. But 988 is a very, very fateful day in Russian history. Indeed, I would argue it, this war is not new. This conflict is not new. Russia seeing Ukraine as their own possession is not new. Just about every Russian ruler since you know the beginning of time viewed Ukraine in much this way. And it's partially due to the fact that the first Russian state was founded at Kiev in the Ninth century. It'd be like saying that the United States, you know, its founding didn't take place in what we call the United States today. didn't take place in Boston or Philadelphia or modern day DC, or, but in Ottawa. It'd be like saying that. And so that's that's part of the problem that we're dealing with here. But 988 is a very, very fateful day in Russian history. Indeed, I would argue it is the most fateful date, not just in Russian, but in Ukrainian history. And that is because in that year, the Prince of Kiev, uh, Vladimir, think of him as a king, the ruler of of old Russia at that time, Kievan Rus, he decided that paganism was passe. And he said, you know what? We need a new religion. We need a new religion. We need to catch up with everybody else. And he sent out emissaries. This is according to the Primary Chronicle, which is Russia and Ukraine's oldest historical document, primary chronicle. It tells the, the, the history of Kievan Rus, the history of Russia. So he sends out emissaries to explore the various religions. It's actually quite funny. I tell the story in this book, the, um, the grace effect that I, I think you'll find <laughs> very amusing. But he sends out these emissaries to explore the various options. And without going into the detail, he ultimately decides that they want to adopt Greek Orthodoxy. Do you know why they wanted to adopt it? Not for any real theological reason. It was because they could keep drinking. He says in that document, drinking is the joy of the ruses. And this is when the the emissaries he sends to... Um, explore Islam, they come back and tell him that you can't drink vodka. And he goes, no, 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 that is not a religion for us. We're not interested in that one. And the emissary, you know, who goes to explore Judaism comes back and says, you have to be circumcised. You picture him crossing his legs and saying, Niet, not doing that. So what are the other options? So it comes down to Catholicism, what we call Catholicism today and um, Greek Orthodoxy. And while the, the Great Schism, which t- takes place in 1054, the formal separation between what is today Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy, had not yet happened. It's, it's still, you know, not quite a century away, the cultural differences were nonetheless there. And the cultural differences were chiefly linguistic, because Catholicism, you had the Latin West and you had the Greek. East. And the emissaries who came back from Constantinople said to him, we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. And it is because they saw, you know what they saw? In fact, have you seen it? Hagia Sophia. They saw Hagia Sophia. They were, com- they were utterly astonished. And you should be. If you go there, you'll know why. The blue mosque, which is just ac- across from it, the Muslim effort to copy it just looks like trash compared to the Hagia Sophia. And it was done in the 6th century. Justinian I, the, um, the Byzantine emperor, who had it constructed, when he walked in Hagia Sophia, he said, I have surpassed thee, O Solomon. He was, he was just blown away by it. And it's because the dome, an unsupported dome there, has 40 windows around the base, which is incredible. The amount of light That comes in most dome structures, they can't, they can't, the engineers can't figure out how to put windows around it. And it looked like the dome itself was was held by a golden chain from heaven, is what people said. And so they were so impressed by Hagia Sophia that they said, God must surely dwell there, they told him. He goes, That's the religion for us. I don't have to get circumcised, and I can keep drinking vodka. Great. But why it was a fateful decision is because it forever separated. The, the Greeks would send two missionaries, uh, Cyril and Methodius, to, to adapt the Russian language as it existed at the time to the Greek alphabet. So the Cyrillic alphabet is not exactly the Greek alphabet, but it's a modified Greek alphabet that they did for the Russian language. That's where we get the term Cyril, Cyrillic. That's where we get the name of their alphabet. And what that did is it forever separated Russia and Ukraine culturally and linguistically from the West because all the massive cultural convulsions, and guess what those were? The Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, Russia and Ukraine never experienced any of those things. None of them. Not even the French man purse craze. They missed all of that. By the time we get to the 20th century, Russia and Ukraine are a full two centuries behind the West, technologically speaking. The Industrial Revolution began in Britain in about the 1740s. It didn't begin in earnest in Russia until the first of the five-year plans in 1925. Think about that almost two centuries behind. And see, and this has always been Russia and Ukraine's problem. Hence the struggle between the Slavophiles and the Westernizers, because the Slavophiles say we stay, we remain strictly, um, we strictly adhere to our own traditions. And the Westernizers say we must modernize or we just become a vassal state of the West because they have all the nifty stuff. We don't have any of that technology. We don't have it. And so Russia and Ukraine have historically had to rely on stealing technology from the West. Straight down to the atomic bomb was stolen from the West. This actually comes up, and it's historically accurate, in Oppenheimer. You know, Klaus Fuchs and others, they were working for the Russians So what I'm wanting you to understand, what I'm trying to communicate to you in this is that when you try to understand countries like Ukraine, countries like Russia, with an American perspective, I'm trying to tell you, you cannot penetrate the mindset because the mindset is not the same. Fyodor Chayuchev, I'll see if I can remember this poem off the top of my head. Has a little poem, Russian poet called Not with the Mind, but he says, Not with the mind is Russia comprehended. The standard measure will deceive. In Russia, one must just believe. It's, it's something like that. And that's true because you can't penetrate the Russian and Ukrainian mindset. It's a very, very different mindset. Coming back to Sasha, when we when I was speaking to groups there, some a Christian group there learned that I was in the country and invited me to come and speak in Kyiv. And so I did, I went down and, uh, and, and addressed this group and I'm thinking I'm talking to the home team. And during the Q and a, somebody raises a hand and says, um, you know, why are you in Ukraine? And I said, now these are Christians, Ukrainian Christians. Why are you here? And I said, well, my wife and I are here adopting a child. There was silence. And then these people began trying to talk me out of adopting. And I don't know of any Christians who would do that in the United States. But they were trying to tell me, I shouldn't adopt. And they said, you do understand that orphans are different, don't you? And the word they used is bezprzorni. Bezprzorni, that means unsupervised ones. But that Russian word doesn't really translate because it carries with it, it's freighted, with a negativity that you can't quite capture in a single English word, it means it's something very damning about these children. You don't want them. You don't want anything to do with these kids. The bezprizorny is the word for these orphan children. You don't want them. Don't bring them into your house. You'll regret it. And I found myself in a in kind of a debate with these Ukrainians. Now I do realize there are Ukrainians who will listen, watch this podcast, who will say, you know, Ukrainians work in the orphanages and they do adopt children. Russians would say the same thing, but not nearly enough. The, the adoption facilitators will tell you, Ukrainian and Russian adoption facilitators will tell you that very few Russians and Ukrainians, A, work in the orphanages, I mean, volunteer to work in the orphanages, to do actual good, and B, almost never adopt. They will tell you that the children are overwhelmingly adopted from the West and among that group, overwhelmingly by Americans. By Americans. And I would argue that that has to do with what I call the grace effect. That has to do with evangelical Christians who are moved to do something on behalf of these children. But the point is, you can't penetrate that mindset. It is a very, very different mindset, and you need to understand that. And again, it goes back to their history. Their history has produced a very, very different cultural experience. They haven't gone through the the same things that we've gone through in the West. They just haven't. And to some extent, that's not all bad. That's not all bad. You know, Russia and Ukraine have known suffering on a scale that beggars the Western mind. We think this Private Ryan's won World War II at Normandy on D-Day, Operation Overlord. The Russians take exception to that because they say roughly 55 million people died in World War II and half of those people were Russian. That's true. The Russians lost more people in a single battle. You could choose two. You could go with, um, with um, St. Petersburg, which was called Leningrad at that time. They lost more people at Leningrad and at Stalingrad than we lost in the whole war. And that is individually, by the way. I don't mean Leningrad and Stalingrad combined. I mean, separately. They lost more people in just those two battles than we lost in the entire war. That is their experience. And they would say, it wasn't Private Ryan. It was us at Stalingrad that won the war. You can take your own perspective on that. The point is the Russians, the Ukrainians are very proud people. And there are many things that I can appreciate about them. And in many ways, it has to do with their literature. Their literature, the suffering has produced wonderful literature, wonderful art, extraordinary art. And I will also tell you that the Russians and Ukrainians are some of the most hospitable people I have ever encountered in the world. Incredible. The meal they serve you might've cost them a month's salary but it means something to them to give it to you. I've often, I've often compared them to New Yorkers. They're, they're, they often have an exterior that's, that's very gruff on the outside, but once you penetrate that, once they invite you into their homes, they'll die for you. I will never forget being on a... Um, and this, this, this type of experience happens all the time. I've had it happen to me both in Ukraine and in Russia. And that is you get on a tram and then some thick-necked... Thugs who work for the government, but they're mafia types. They don't let anybody get off the tram until you pay them a bribe. You have to pay them a bribe or you don't get off. And when I was in Russia in the early 90s, a young Russian woman was my uh, translator. I, of course, was quite young at the time too, but this happens. This is my first time to experience this. She's kind of a tiny thing. And um, these bullies get on, and they don't let us get off. And they're shouting at everybody, but they start shouting at me. And, of course, I don't understand at all what they're saying. And she gets in between me and them, and she's like this. I mean, she's ready to go. She's ready to, to fist fight with them right there on the spot. And then finally, when they understand that I'm an American, they let us off and i said to her wow you know you really didn't need you really need to get between me and them like that you could have gotten hurt and she said you're my guest and i'm responsible for you cannot let cannot let people in my own country treat you like that it was it was it was amazing kind of courage you can't possibly hope to navigate this with the standard american assumptions which are this that everybody else in the world wants the same thing we want Osama bin Laden understood the United States very well and wanted to destroy it. In the aftermath of 9-11, there were all sorts of people who said, the guys who flew those planes into the buildings, they were crazy, just like Putin. They're crazy. No, it was a perfectly rational act given their worldview. From a secular point of view, it made no sense. I mean, why would you kill yourself like that? But they weren't secularly minded. These are people who believed that Allah sought to reward them in the next life with 70 virgins. They believe that if they died martyrs, that that's what they would get, eternal salvation, basically everything they wanted. Perfectly rational within that framework. The Russian mindset isn't the same as ours. Russians and Ukrainians do not think the same way as you do. They also have a a, um, a very different threshold of tolerance for suffering and for evil because they've become quite used to it. And for corruption, you you can't get anything done in either one of those countries without bribing people. You just have to, it's just the way it is. You get into a taxi cab, you better be careful as to where you might end up. And it's not just Ukraine and Russia. That is true throughout most of the third world. And these are third world countries. Again, if you go back to what I was saying about first, second, third, and fourth world, I would say that these countries are third world. They're not on the same poverty index as Nigeria, as, um, say, Egypt or Colombia, but they're close. And once you get out of the major metropolitan centers, that's what it looks like. You know, Kiev is, in many parts, is really kind of a beautiful city. Odessa, too. You go down, you know, close to the port, down to the, uh, to the Potemkin steps, you'll see supercars all over the place, yachts that are mind-blowing. Just a few miles in, our orphanages where kids were not given toilet paper. A daughter was not given toilet paper. You know why? Because the, the, the people who worked in the orphanage would steal it. We were told not—Sasha, we, uh, when she would come to our apartment— Lori took her out and bought her, my wife took her out and bought her new clothes because Sasha only had two sets of clothes and they were ill-fitting and they're dirty. The kids were bathed once a week. Sasha would, Lori would immediately put Sasha in the shower, would, ba- would, um, would bathe her. She would put new clothes on Sasha that we had purchased and then wash her old clothes. We were told, do not let her go back to the orphanage with her new clothes, The workers will steal those clothes, sell them, or give them to their own children. So we would have to reverse the process in the afternoon, put her back into her old clothes, but we're clean now, send her back to the orphanage, and then repeat the process the next day. And yet there are all these billionaires, mafia types, right there in Odessa, who don't care a thing about those children, don't even give them toilet paper. The kids used a hole in the ground outside with no doors. You remember that? Absolutely incredible. The stench, the flies. So don't tell me how wonderful this country is. But again, do not interpret my comments to mean that I'm pro-Russian. I should hope that it's very clear here, and I'm certainly not pro-US as it relates to this war. I do wanna end by saying this, and maybe at some point I'll give a more thorough discussion, treatment of the histories of these two countries and how they're linked. Russia and Ukraine, but I'll speak specifically here of Ukraine. Ukraine has suffered a deeply tragic history, and its peoples have known suffering on an extraordinary scale. They've known invasion, occupation, genocide, invasion, occupation, genocide, over and over again. Novelist Leonora said of uh, Ireland, he said, Ireland has no future, only the past repeating itself. That's true of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the history of the West is linear, progressive, moving from one thing to the next. As I just said, from the Renaissance to the Reformation to the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, now we're in, you know, I don't know what you want to call this age, the, the computer age, the artificial intelligence period, the technological age. That is not true of these two countries. Not true at all, it's cyclical and it's a bad cycle, a very, very bad cycle. And a lot of that simply has to do with the fact that poor Ukraine has no, it has no natural barriers behind which it can hide. Geography, as I learned from my old tutor, um, Michael Richard Daniel Foote, MRD Foote, He emphasized the importance of geography in how history plays out. And it's extraordinarily important. The United States has two marvelous anti-tank ditches known as the Atlantic and the Pacific. And we haven't had hostile nations right on our border. That has not been true for Ukraine. Ukraine has been for centuries invaded from the West and from the East and they've almost never been the point of destination for those armies. They're just a doormat going in one direction or the other. Invaders coming and going throughout their history. They have suffered this. And it is because they do not have, like the Swiss, they have no Alps to hide behind. They do not have an English Channel, like the British, to hide behind. They do not have the Atlantic or the Pacific, like the United States, to hide behind. They don't even have, like the French, the Vosges Mountains. They don't have that. And the result has been tragedy for the Ukrainian people. And unfortunately, Ukraine, governed on and off by corrupt Russia, has adopted corrupt practices, just as the Russians adopted them from the Mongols. I remember my... uh, my old Russian tutor, I don't think I have his book up here, Hugh Ragsdale. He used to say this, um, the, um, the Mongols who invaded Russia, they galloped onto the Russian steppe in 1241. They t- stayed for two centuries. They didn't leave until 1480. For two centuries. He said they brought nothing but worthy of imitation except methods of warfare. The Russians and Ukrainians modeled them in everything except warfare. (laughs) But they adopted their tyrannical techniques, their brutality. And it has affected their history right down to the present. Now, some people want to say, well, Larry, your impressions of Russia and Ukraine are a little outdated. I was just there just five years ago. So it's not that long ago. And you want to tell me the whole country has changed? These two countries have changed incredibly in the last five years? I think not centuries of practices do not change that rapidly, especially not for the better. They can for the negative. We're seeing it in the United States. You can go from being a good nation to a bad one quite quickly, but you do not go from being a bad one to a good one overnight. That is a process. It is a lengthy process, a little bit like sanctification. It just takes a little while to get there. And my hope is by the way, that both Russia and Ukraine become better countries. I'm not sure anymore that I want him to become like the United States because Putin has a point when he criticizes the United States as a country that whacks off the penises of little boys, that says that a woman can be a man and vice versa, that destroys its children. In that, he's absolutely dead on. He's absolutely dead on. The criticism is perfectly valid in that regard. But is Putin himself a, um, is he a champion of freedom? Definitely not. He's a mafioso. And what we are seeing right now is a war, a struggle between not one, not two, but three mafias. A Russian mafia, a Ukrainian mafia, and a globalist mafia in the West. That is what we're seeing. And it's why I'm not rooting for anyone in this other than the Ukrainian people who are themselves victims. They are the the chessboard upon which all this is being played out. And they're suffering. They're suffering. But do I feel any any, uh, sympathy with their government? None. With the Russian government? None. And with our government, none. We provoked this war. We are probably the most evil player in the whole thing. The Biden administration, what they're doing in Ukraine is, in my opinion, unconscionable. Some of you have asked, well, how do I help the Ukrainian people? I am all for authentic humanitarian efforts to ease the suffering of the Ukrainian people or the Russian people for that matter. I'm all for humanitarian efforts if you know that that money is actually going to humanitarian efforts. Because often it doesn't in those countries. It goes into the pockets of mafia types. Bear in mind, earlier this year, I was in Poland interviewing Ukrainian war refugees. And what I kept hearing over and over again was those billions of dollars your country is sending, we aren't seeing it, not affecting us. The help they're getting, they're getting from American Christians who have set up relief stations and you know, and uh, soup kitchens. It's not from the Biden administration's billions of dollars. That's going into Swiss bank accounts. That's going into the Cayman Islands. It's going into a war. Is it going to help the common people? I'd love to see that change. Delighted you tuned in. I hope that you will not lose heart in doing good. I hope that you will engage the people around you. And I hope that you will believe as I do that we serve a great God. We serve the God who said, let there be light and he can use you. Be like Isaiah who said, here I am Lord, send me.